Hello, and welcome to Coffee and Comics. I'm Todd A. I'm Taylor Trask. Hello, Taylor. We are, once again, uh, it seems like we've done this for the past three weeks, uh, recording in the evening, so I'm not actually drinking any coffee. What about yourself? I am drinking coffee because it's been a hell of a day. Oh, boy. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually have a fancy new mug from, long story short, one of my favorite coffee shops in Colorado Springs um, that I've been going to long before I moved down here closed uh, a month or two ago and uh, they had these really cool cups and as kind of their final uh, salute to their customers they let us all put an order in for you know one of these commemorative cups and it just came in today and it's beautiful and so i'm uh, this will be my new favorite mug for a little while and i just put in just a regular old aeropress Uh, i don't even know what the beans are i'm truth be told i'm kind of out of beans so this is kind of like the last this is the last week of uh, leftovers and i'll be back in uh, the swing of things again do you uh, now i you might as well buzz market the name of this uh coffee shop that that's out of business now <laughs> it was called agia sophia and uh it was <clears throat> it was an interesting concept it was sort of a, r- a lightly religiously oriented coffee shop but they didn't throw that in your face um, you know, you'd walk and it was in this really cool, cool old house that used to be the city hall, um, in old Colorado city. And you walk in, it was just this gorgeous, it was, it was almost like where Harry Potter would go have coffee and you, they had like a bookshelf of stuff. And like, if you wanted to, you know, ask them about, you know, their, their beliefs and stuff you could, but they never, it was never front and center. You could just go and work and do your thing. And, um, they had amazing food and amazing coffee and just, I could, cruise through work there so so was it, it was, like uh was it like a in and out burgers where there was a secret <laughs> bible verse printed on the bottom inside of your cup or something ah uh, no 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 they didn't even go outside. that far no no oh, no it's just okay. like the only way the only reason you or way you would know is if you walked upstairs they had a couple shelves of like um different religious books and not even like oh. you know not even it, it, various you know academic kinds of books you know like um uh, the history of Judea and that kind of stuff. And that uh-huh. by that, you Dianetics. Go, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> all, all either Judeo, you know, basically Judeo Christian kinds of stuff, <laughs> but it was just there. And again, they never, you know, they never pushed it in your face. It was never, it was very, very respectful. And, right. and likewise, I felt very respectful towards them because I'm yeah. like, this is great. This is how it should be. If you, if this is your thing, fine, but you could go and you could be a, a flaming atheist and they wouldn't say anything to you care and they would treat you just like everybody else. So yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> they know who's going to hell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly, certainly I, not the people who bought these cups. Cause they, uh, apparently there's a lot of orders and that's why it took so long, but um, it's, it was really cool. And I just, I, I, I like the mugs are really freaking cool. They're all handmade um, and just gorgeous. So I, I really wanted one. Well, I am uh, consoling myself with a Bundaberg ginger beer. Which uh, uh, oh, eagle-eared to- listeners will remember from our live, one of our live in-person episodes way back in twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, Bundaberg, <laughs> Bundaberg, uh, ginger beer. Yeah, I remember that. I used to- they released a uh, winter like beer, like a winter ginger beer uh, this uh, this season, and I, I don't know if they've done it before. This is the only one I was able to get my hands on any, and it was incredible. Nice, very spicy. Ah, I'm gonna have to go hunt that down. Where do you, do you just find that at a regular grocery store? Or where do you get uh, yours? Yeah, it's at a regular grocery store now. Um, in fact, it's funny the like uh, super indie healthy market next to me does not carry this brand. I'm pretty sure <laughs> because they're like it's like Bundaberg's like sold out now, so they've got the super indie ginger beers. <laughs> Bundaberg's just at Kroger, oh, but wow. the winter one. Um, 
I, I had it when I was back in Nashville and I, I think my mother procured it at a, you know, some sort of healthy indie market, something like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, we should jump into something that we think is very cool because uh, hopefully uh, you're you're probably hearing this the week of April 4th. At least that's when we're releasing it. Um, but, you know, you should listen to our stuff anytime. It's timeless. Uh, but if you are listening to it on April 4th, it is possible that this Amazon uh, sale is still going on where a crap load of trade what we would normally call trade paperbacks, except they are the comiXology versions of them. The, the mm-hmm. Kindle slash comiXology versions of all of these Marvel trades are on sale for 99 pennies. So yes. less than a dollar, you can start picking up some awesome stuff. Uh, this was linked. I don't know if it was like, crap, I don't even remember where it came from. I know it was one of the um, like Gawker zines or whatever, because it had a it had Kenja in the title, I think. Mm. Anyway, maybe that maybe that was just an affiliate link or something. Hopefully, you can find it if you go to Amazon Comics Marvel. You should find this Marvel sale. Um, what did you pick up? Well, first of all, I I was delighted when you uh, put me, uh, sent me a message over Hangouts and said check this out. And I went and there was like what two hundred uh, <laughs> books. It was absurd. And and like you said, it was only the digital versions. But I'm fine with that. I'm a huge Comicsology user as some of you may know. So I, I just decided, I'm like, you know what? I don't have time for any more than five books. That's five bucks, a buck a piece. And uh, I'll just get five volumes. And it's kind of cool because some of these are, are books I've been meaning to look at at some yeah. point. Um, I have been increasingly intrigued by how they're treating Doctor Strange after the movie. Mm. I, uh, for some reason, I'm like, I really liked... I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the movie, but I love the aesthetic of the movie, the costumes. Yeah. Um, the way they sort of, you know, it, it, gone is that ridiculous kind of weird seventies magician outfit, which I'm sure some people love, but I always hated. I could never take it seriously. And now it's kind of that Eastern mysticism kind of vibe. So I picked up Dr. Strange volume five secret empire, which I'm very intrigued by. The art looks gorgeous. Um, I previewed all these before I sort of looked at them, but that that's amazing. Um, I picked up something kind of indie and cool. It's called Spider-Man, the daily bugle. And yeah. it's uh, a collection of stories from the point of view of the Daily Bugle, and they're all in black and white. And it's all, you know, like the hair, the hair, the heroism of the uh, staff. In fact, the uh, tagline of the logline says, "Read all about it." New York's number one newspaper steals the headlines in gripping tales, spotlighting the Daily Bugle, its fearless staff, and its frightening head honcho, J. Jonah, J. J. Jonah Jameson. So that's, uh, I'm sure, some of them have to do with Spider-Man somehow, but it's, yeah. it looks really cool. I finally picked up, um, especially because I think it's concluding. Um, volume four of the mighty Thor. And uh, this is, of course, those of you who know, it's, it's Jane Foster's, you know, is Thor. And it's kind of a a She-Ra situation where she's, you know, weak and has cancer and becomes Thor. So I'm actually really excited about this. I've been meaning to ever since uh, Todd, you mentioned a a show long ago, I think. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm rapidly trying to find what episode that was in. Yeah. You you (laughs) gave it a really great review. And I remember them being really intrigued. And uh, now that it's kind of concluding, I want to jump in. Uh, also bought another random Thor book. And then uh, I bought finally, and this has been on my list for some time, um, the uh, Vision, the complete series. Oh, man. I am so excited about these choices because you did exactly what I, we could not have planned, but it's perfect. <laughs> I grabbed Vision 2. Mm. And then you grabbed a bunch of other, you grabbed several other things that I looked at. Like I didn't actually buy Thor Volume 4 mm. because as you will hear in a moment, I grabbed too much stuff. <laughs> but that vision thing, 
Yeah, so that's great. We should definitely do an upcoming episode on that. Yeah, and and if you're listening and you're wondering why that's exciting, this vision series has been celebrated um, for like the last year. It was the Eisner Award winner for best limited series last year. Um, it is apparently like everybody who reads it says, if you don't like comic books, you'll love this because yeah. I guess it comments. It's a really nice commentary on humanity, and um, it it seems to fit nicely in that sweet spot of stuff I like, which is you know the you know literary comic books. That yeah. um, you know that kind of go beyond just genre and go beyond tropes and really start to delve into some meaty matters. So I can't I can't wait to crack this open. And written by Tom King. Yes, and I believe the person who recommended to it recommended it to us was our friend Drew, who mm-hmm. just thinks Tom King is is brilliant. Um, and so Taylor and I had both been told to check out this Vision series. So yeah, I was super excited to see it. Vision, the complete series, and then it's subtitled Vision Director's Cut, twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the whole buck. thing, 99 cents. Buck. If you've been, if you're listening to this, go buy that thing right now. You have no excuse now. It's a exactly. buck. It's a buck. What about you? What'd you grab? Well, I, I, went, a lot. I went, I went crazy because at first when I probably, when we were both sort of scrolling through the uh, first page and we were texting back and forth, like, ah, uh, you know, it's a lot of volume. It's not, vo- not a lot of volume ones. So we didn't really know where we were going to start. And then what I did was I went crazy on several titles where, they had the volume two of it, but I had already been interested. I went and then paid the normal price for volume one, which in many cases was only like a four to six dollars mm-hmm. and then bought the volume two for 99 cents. So I um, then I texted you back and said, yeah, I, w- I went nuts. I got 16. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll highlight just a couple. I grabbed uh, the Mighty Captain Marvel uh, volumes one and two. I think only two was 99 cents. Um, I had actually picked up a couple of stray issues of that. And then it was one of those things where I missed a couple issues. And then when I came back to the series, I, w- I was too late. And um, uh, and also that Civil War two thing totally turned me off of like reading more during that run. Um, but I'm really happy that I got these collected editions now. And then just this morning, before I even knew of the sale, I had heard um, that it was imperative to grab uh, the the Unstoppable Wasp series, which I believe they've already canceled. Um, and again, volume two was 99 cents, but I went ahead and bought volume one as well. Um, and then I went and grabbed a ton of the bunch of those Marvel collections are uh, uh, X team related, you know, it's a bunch of mutants. Um, I grabbed the X caliber, uh, collection, which was, um, I, I believe it's just one arc X caliber was like this uh, gang of British mutants. And this is a story about when they meet, uh, the, some of the X-Men and Avengers. Um, anyway, I, this is a comic book. I had a couple of them back in the eighties or nineties and was just happy to grab this and check out some old stuff as well as like, I grabbed an X-Men Epic collection and a new mutants Epic collection. Um, I grabbed Thor by Walter Simonson volume one and two. So like the (laughs) 1960s run that he did. Um, I was pretty excited about that. And, uh, yeah. And vision. Oh, and, uh, America volume one, which, um, I have heard great things about would, but would never be able to describe it to you because it has been so long since I've heard those great things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just a, you know, again, like this is a book I've been meaning to check out. It's 99 cents. Yeah. So it's, it's as satisfying as many of those image sales have been to us in the past. I just, I was like, I was kind of felt a little giddy. I was like this and this, oh, yeah. and, <laughs> this and I almost, there was, it almost kind of felt too. Like there was one of those, um, you know, when you, 
you win a, a shopping spree and you have like 20 minutes to fill your car. Just kind of, I, I, for whatever reason, I felt like there was a time limit. I'm just going to hurry up. I know. I know. I was doing the same thing. I And what I did too was I, I couldn't keep up with everything to make my decision. So I just started opening every book <laughs> I was interested in in a new tab. So I had like 25 tabs open and then I would have to evaluate like, because there were a bunch of cool stuff like they were calling them the, like the Marvel firsts from the 1960s. And it would be the first appearance of several iconic characters. And there was Marvel first 1970s. And you know, I, I kept going through these like, ah, you know, I, I, I don't care about half these characters, but it's 99 cents. Um, so I had to make some tough choices, <laughs> I guess. But oh, main, mainly only because I bought some full priced editions. And they, they had two of the Mighty Thors, the Jane Foster editions um, for 99 cents. And then the other two that I didn't have were full price. And I just felt like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to put that off. I'll get them all at once. <laughs> Oh. You're going to be, we're, I think we joked about this privately. You're going to have enough content for coffee and comics for the next two years. Yeah. I mean, we're going to start doing this show five days a week, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, might as well. We but should, well, this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to kick it off or you want me to jump in? I would love to kick it off because I have a series um, and this is going to be kind of a cheat again because I could give you no. volume one and, and I will, and I'll try to keep this localized to volume one, but I'm really talking about a series in full uh, cool. because it's still ongoing. It is one of, it is by one of my favorite creators of all time. It is a newer series that kicked off in uh, August of 2016 and it involves conspiracy and murder and the occult and magic and oh, yeah, it, it is the Black Monday Murders by my boy Jonathan Hickman and art by Tom Coker or Cocker. I do not know how he pronounces his name. And of course, once again, published by Image. Let me Black uh, Monday Murders. The Black Monday Murders. Okay, and, just making sure when I repeat that several times that I've got it right. Yeah, and and I could say Volume One, but I'm not. I, I'm going to talk about the issues in the series as a whole. And I'll get to why in just a second. First of all, my love of John Hickman knows no limits as anybody who's familiar with the show, who's listened to one or many episodes knows I am a huge Hickman fan. He's my favorite creator writer right now. Um, he has a ridiculous Marvel resume. So if you want to know what he's done, just go Google his name and look at all his Marvel credits. It's kind of silly, but that's just Marvel outside of that. He's got an equally impressive indie resume um, he and Robert Kirkman must be on a race to see who can exhaust, you know, be, no be, exhaust themselves the fastest. Cause I, I mean, Hickman's got four or five concurrent indie series going on while he's working on the Marvel stuff among those series, East of West, um, quite often name checked on the show. I love that. Um, the Manhattan project, which I, I haven't really gotten as much into cause I don't like the art as much, but I love the, the idea of it. Um, one of my absolute favorite things, the nightly news, his apps, his very first, um, uh, graphic novel he put out. If you're a fan of the medium and you want to see just a brilliant debut by a brilliant creator, go pick that up. Pax Romana, same thing. And then the dying and the dead, I'm going to call out specifically because that's still an ongoing series too. I mean, every, that, that thing comes out maybe every four or five months, and then maybe it might do a couple months and then take takes a year off. It's it's really hit and miss in terms of when it comes out. But I name check it because the dying and the dead seems to have a weird tangential relationship to the Black Monday murders. Um, there are a couple characters or sort of types of characters in the dying and the dead who also seem to be in the Black Monday murders. But it's never, at least right now, it's not, I, I don't think there's any intention to make it part of the same 
you know, they're not going to meet up at any point. I just think it's this one of these weird sort of like Stephen King, you know, black dark, dark tower sort of kind of like, you know, things that just happens to be in the background that, you know, if you notice it, you notice it. And that's as far as it will go. Um, Tom Cocker or Coker, he has a few other image credits to his name, but this is really his breakout. If you go and Google him, like this is, he's, he's really putting his stamp on this series. So I look forward to seeing more from him. As to the series itself, I'm going to sum it up as a crypto noir series. Um, very much has all the right elements of noir, but uh, the crypto kind of magic element is, is very much a character throughout. And I'll just read the summary from the uh, from the image website itself, and then I'll kind of talk more about it. But the summary, I, it's really hard to summarize this book. That's why I want to read this first. It says, The Black Monday Murders is a classic occultism where the various schools of magic are actually clandestine banking cartels who control all of society. A secret world where vampire Russian oligarchs, black popes, enchanted American aristocrats, aristocrats rather, and hitmen from the International Monetary Fund work together to keep us all in our proper place. So, this is really a book that, or a series rather, that, that mythologizes conspiracy. If you've ever heard people talk about, or if you yourself have ever wondered about the Bilderberg Group, or the Rothschild family, or you know, world banking, all of these, like, you know, whenever somebody refers to them or they, this is a series that, that, that takes that question and builds a mythology around it and attaches it to a, a crime noir. And there is a, there's a main, I guess the main, kind of storyline focuses on the characters and the interplay of these, of these uh, families. Um, you know, these kind of these, these banking families, uh, the Rothschilds are, are, are actually one of them that are named. Oh, There's really? several, yeah. Yeah. It's, and they, he, <laughs> he actually uses real world events and real people and places. Wow. Um, just so you know, uh, uh, I, I decided to get this about, 10 seconds into <laughs> Googling it. <laughs> See, I knew, I knew you, you and I had aware of this. And yeah. It's, it's I read the Wikipedia entry right before you read the summary and was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, the, that's the joy of coffee and comics is, is I, I know <laughs> first and foremost, I hope you become a fan of these things um, as much as our listeners. But um, I, I, I figured I've been kind of saving this one. Cause a, I wanted to see, you know, where it was going. Um, but also I, I, I knew based on the conversations we have and our sort of, our sort of, uh, hobbyism of, of talking about and sort of, you know, yeah. wondering about these things. I knew you, you'd probably our shared interests, uh, outside of comics relate. Yeah. To well, so is, is the series over? Oh God, no, 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 oh, no. Okay. So it they is are, ongoing. Gotcha. They're just rounding the corner on volume two as we speak. I think that comes out either this month or next month. Um, but the 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 B story is I, I want to mention this too before I forget the B story is uh and actually what kicks off the entire series is this is this murder that is uh, assigned to a detective Theodore Dumas or Dumas who's um, kind of our main protagonist but his I call it a B story because we get just as much and probably more about the interplay between these families as we do him trying to solve this murder it all comes together. At some point, and and the most recent issue, which I think is number eight, nine, I, the most recent on uh, on uh, Image Comics website, yeah, yeah, eight. So I just picked up eight, um, and there's a man. 
I, I, I sound like a broken, uh, broken record when I say this, but this is another one of those that could be the best Showtime or HBO series <laughs> that has never been made yet. Like it's so goddamn good. And there's a twist that just happened in eight. That's like, Oh Jesus. Like they, they, um, there's a lot of soap opery kind of things going on between the families. You know, you get to see that dynamic and then the character development of Dumas uh, Thomas, you know, the detective, he is really, really good. And where they take him and kind of, he's our eyes and ears into this world. Um, and there's something that happens that's just wonderfully, wonderfully played. Uh, it's format. The reason I, I say I, I'm not going to talk about a particular, you know, volume, you, go get volume one if you want. My recommendation is get single issues and get single issues oh. in physical format. And here's why. Like many, uh, if you're a fan of Hickman, a lot of what he does in terms of how he creates his books is just as much in the formatting of the actual book, like the design of the book as it is in the story. So for example, um, the nightly news, his very, his debut is there's a lot of infographics and a lot of, um, you know, so the, the, the way he inserts infographics and uses them is as much a part of the story as the story itself in Pax Romana. Uh, a good chunk of that book is just written, dialogue he doesn't even draw it and there's a good reason for why in this um a lot of a lot of the book is is the panels and the art but a lot of it is case files that have been redacted and you get to see like every four or five pages you see maybe two or three pages of actual like scanned case files that you can you can gleam and you know gleam things from very much like alan moore alan moore you know kind of notorious for doing this too where he inserts a lot of other stuff that complements the story and delves in deeper hickman just likes making it as in world as possible so when you get the physical you know one shot or sorry the, the physical single issues you feel like you're actually collecting this case dossier as it unfolds and you get to see almost like it's almost like uh detective dumas like you know had this stack of you know is sending you in the mail like these these case files and you're reading them as it goes along so it gives it kind of an extra tactile sort of feel that i really like wow Um, not to say that getting volume one as a trade paperback wouldn't be satisfying i'm sure it would be i would definitely say check it out on digital but don't like if you want to go for it get the physical issues because it's just it's a really satisfying experience um i'm not going to say too much about the actual storyline itself outside of you know there's a murder that kicks it off and these families are all warring with each other and you get a lot of sense of the history of how you know these families came into power where they derive their power um as it goes along the the uh, occult aspect becomes bigger and bigger and bigger um so definitely if, if any of that sort of is off-putting to you or if you know if, if you find that disturbing, you know, be be aware of that. I it, I find it somewhat disturbing, but it's just as enthralling. So I it does I don't mind it. It's actually it, it's it's very much an essential part of the story. It's not gratuitous. It's not like a snuff film or a snuff comic. It's it all has a place for sure. But just you know, this is not something you would give a kid. Basically, I mean, yeah, yeah. This is rated M. <laughs> like definitely, I, I think the, co- the cover art's going to tip you off there. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and honestly, if you look at the cover art. That is not an exaggeration. That is what you're in for. Um, the cover art is, nice. is usually a panel from the book. So you know, in one, just to kind of you know, give you a sense, in one of the uh, in one of the covers, there's a you know that you might see a you know a detective with a hat on with a gun, you know, pulling his gun. That's our main character. In another one, you might see a a human humanoid figure in a suit sitting in a throne of bone with a really jacked up kind of like you know devil skull head looking at you like that's in the book like all everything you see is in the book or is reflective of what you're about to see in the book so just 
you know, take that in mind. The, the guy who, uh, Tom Booker, uh, I want to call him Booker, Booker. Booker. Um, you know, he does the covers as well as the art. So it's, but like most Hickman and image things, like the design is so considered, like the right. look and the feel. Yeah. And what's really, one thing I'll shout out, um, all the families involved um, when they're, e- when they're evoking the, you know, the, the sort of demonic elements or they're, you know, they're trying to access their power or they're talking to each other. There's a, there's a sort of, there's a language they use. That's, that's not, that's nothing that you and I can decipher. It's all sort of symbolism language. That's, um, you know, that's really interesting and really kind of well, well thought out. But as you're reading this, this kind of symbolic language, it's always in a different bubble, like the bubble boxes or the text boxes are always black with white text instead of white with black text. And you kind of get a sense that like, you, you almost, it's strange. You almost kind of think, you know, what it would sound like if this was uttered out loud. I, I can't explain that. Like, but you get this kind of, you kind of almost hear it in your head, which is even freakier. <laughs> so you're just like, where did, is Hickman, is this just all made up? Did he base this on anything like that he's seen in, in, in research? Like where did this come from? So it's, it's really intriguing. Um, but definitely you want to, you can't just, you know, this is not something you just want to thumb through casually, you know, while you're sitting on the crapper, you want to like, you know, <laughs> take your time, go through this, ingest it. It's, you know, you're going to think about certain things and, and ideas that are put at you. Um, but yeah, I, I really like this. I can't wait to see where this is going. Um, he's been pretty consistent in putting it out. You know, he, he took a, a small two or three month break, um, after volume one came out, but he's, they're cranking away at it and it's, just for one, I mean, this isn't, this is a deep enough series where I, this would consume my entire, my entire month in terms of creating it. I don't know where the hell he finds the time. No um, kidding. To write these scripts. So he's so, doing this and East of West and all those other things and all of Marvel at the same time. I, I would say, you know, the, um, there's something really striking about that art, uh, you know, from what I'm looking at on, on Google images, it, it looks like, uh, the interior of the book is like it, the colors are really desaturated, like yeah. almost to a, to a monochrome palette, you know, yes. is it, does it ever turn into just pure black and white in the interiors? No, but okay. they use, they use color. Like, so when they're outside, you know, the, 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 the palette is more blue and white, you know, like when they're right. inside and when there's a murder, you know, it might be black and white with a lot of red accents. Um, there is a particular scene. I don't want to spoil too much. There's a particular scene where you really get a, a full blast of the occult elements. And mm. that color palette is really, really used. I think that's, you don't get pure black and white, but it might as well be just be based on what gotcha. you're looking at. Um, but yeah, it's, it really, man. I mean, it's dark. It's and dark. It's, yeah. Which is in great contrast with East of West, which yes. uses, you know, it's, it uses color in a much more vibrant, like, like a, a, a giant palette of color in East of West. Yeah, man, that's a great uh, comparison. Like, and East of West is, you know, it's dealing with the apocalypse, but yeah. there's something, I don't know, there's something kind of fun about it based on that color palette. It's really intentional. Um, yeah, and this is just, this is, I mean, the, the operative word here is noir. Like this yeah. is a truly noir story that just happens to really lean into the occult and, and conspiracy. Now, when you, uh, you mentioned that like he does draw from you know, some, some real life for, for lack of a better term, conspiracy theories and real family names. Uh, do you know if any of the rest of the setting is drawn from real life? Is this a, a law and order ripped from the headlines kind of thing? Um, I somewhat, I mean, obviously you, as you get into it, you're gonna be like, well, that's made up. 
Um, gotcha. But okay. there are they reference he references things that I haven't outside of just the names and like events. Like he'll yeah. reference the 1987 stock market crash. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like it's it's meant to be in a world with our own history and everything. Obviously. Right. As far as I know, this isn't going on as we speak, um, but it's very much rooted <laughs> in reality. Like Marvel would, you know, like New York City exists in the Marvelverse. Like New York City exists here. The stock market, you know, the crash of 08 exists in this world. Um, I don't know. Like it, there's a particular person who dies from one of the families. I don't know if that actually has happened. I haven't name checked yet that yet. And I don't know if some of like the sons and daughters are, are real people or, or made up, but gotcha. um uh, that's as far as I've gone in. Cause I've just, part of me doesn't want to know, to be honest. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I feel like if I start looking these things up and it's like, it all ends up being accurate. I'm gonna be like, Oh Jesus. Like I don't, yeah, I, either you're <laughs> way more terrified or mm-hmm. you're just kind of like, uh, yeah. Um, sucks the venom out of it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This just looks, uh, really really awesome <laughs> yeah you you specifically are gonna love this book if you're a fan of the medium if you like indie indie stuff you're gonna love it if you like really well designed you know just stuff if you're a hickman fan you'll love it if you're an image fan you'll love it if you're a noir fan a detective story fan you're gonna love it um good lord this is but again not suitable for children yeah please uh, i can't stress that enough do not give this to your niece do not give this to your child drew if you're listening do not give this to your son um <laughs> wait until he's 21 and then even then i would say maybe wait a couple years then then give it to him <laughs> you made me lose my train of thought but so you mentioned the b story was sort of this the detective investigating this murder it, do you get a sense that like is that central or does that run parallel? Like, are, are we following the story to where that mystery is wrapped up? And that's sort of where all the, the ends will get tied up or is this an open-ended story and it's just going to go on forever. I can tell you that up until issue eight, uh, he is very actively trying to solve this murder while okay. you get to see kind of, I mean, you as the reader know what happens. Like it's, it's like, oh, you know, gotcha. stuff he doesn't know, but you're still seeing this world through his eyes in a lot of respects. But by issue eight, there is a sort of, there's definitely going to be a sort of new arc now going forward for everybody involved. And it was not anything I saw coming. And I was just like, oh, how satisfying is this going to be? Like, I can't, I literally can't wait until nine. And I'm guessing he's going to take now that he's sort of, um, I think volume two, yeah, volume two does come out this month. Uh, the trade paperback. So I'm, my guess is there might be a small hiatus before we get to nine because I don't see it advertised on the image website uh, as of right yet. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that is very cool. Uh, my book pick could not be more disparate from that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe if I had literally picked a children's book, um, <laughs> but uh yeah, I actually, that one looks so dark that I, I just can't even imagine anything that's like in the same family. Maybe when I finally get around to reading Alistair and Adolf, uh, <laughs> the story of Alistair Crowley and Adolf Hitler, uh, mm-hmm. maybe I will, I, I'll, then I will <laughs> enter that darkness. <laughs> yeah. But um, <clears throat> yeah, my book is uh, The Zen of Steve Jobs. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, now this is, let me just jump in right away. This is the second Steve Jobs pick yeah. that we talked about on the show. I forget which one of us talked about the, um, the terms and conditions. That was you, I, right? I did that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you, you, you gave me that book. That's right. Uh, I didn't know if I had reviewed it prior to giving it to you or if you had talked about it. Yeah. If that, this is the second Steve Jobs entry. Yes. So uh, the Zen of Steve Jobs is, has a really interesting, uh, like, 
creation story to it, um, which is that, <laughs> that it is a project of Forbes magazine oh, wow. <laughs> and a creative agency uh, called Jess three, which sort of looks like the name Jesse, which uh, I just forgot Jesse's name. There is a Jesse behind that. I'm sorry. I will find it. Um, but it was uh, yeah. Jesse Thomas of Jess three. Uh, and so Forbes had actually wanted to do like a, a, you know, an interesting biography of Steve Jobs. And I believe the project was actually created before he passed away. Mm. And then um, they brought in this writer, uh, Caleb Melby, and he worked with this creative agency. So it's very much like a designed book. It's, mm. it's not necessarily something you would just quickly think of as coming from Forbes magazine. Mm -hmm. But I think if you, if you think of it as um, you know, as uh, because of its design, if you saw it uh, um, what do I want to say? If you saw it online digitally, like on their website, it, you might, you might just sort of go, Oh, they gave a new, you know, graphic artist some illustration to do. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it might fit in the context a little bit better there, but holding it as a book in your hand, there's nothing about it that, says this is a Forbes book. Like it is a really nice looking trade paperback. Um, the art uh, is uh, very, it, it, you know, it, it has a light touch to it. It's very minimalist. They talk a lot about the making of the book at the end of it. And they definitely tried to emulate sort of the Apple style in what mm -hmm. they were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. And what they were talking about into the art. So this, story is the mostly true story of Steve Jobs relationship with his Zen teacher, Cobanchino. And so it was, you know, I, it came out um, in 2012. So it came out a year after Steve Jobs death. Mm -hmm. um, and probably before I had read the Walter Isaacson biography, I can't remember when that came out. Uh, but I remember in that biography, it, it, this was sort of, you know, it, it was a, there was, there's definitely like, there were stories told um, of Steve's relationship to, to Zen Buddhism and this teacher, Cobanchino. And I probably, yeah, like I said, I probably picked this up before that just because it kind of grabbed my eye and, you know, it was around that time I'd bought a couple of books on Steve Jobs at the time, and, but also because, um, I have done um, quite a lot of Zen Buddhist meditation, Zazen, and in the same school as Cobanchino and the Zen priest that I used to sit with had actually, I believe at the time, had written a blog post about his relationship with Cobanchino. So I sort of had all these inroads to like, oh, this is really interesting that there, you know, this is a book about Steve's relationship to this figure that was pretty much accessible in, in uh, California Zen Buddhism at the time. I don't realize you know? that. That's interesting. I, a, I never heard this about Steve Jobs. B, it's cool oh. that you have sort of a, a tie-in to that. And it's, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make anything of that except that like, it's just a school of Zen. It's sort of like, you know, knowing the Pope if you're Catholic, I think. Yeah. It's like, I, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> um, so they do, uh, basically, as I recall the, what the Isaacson story is, I, um, I believe Steve had this interest in, in, you know, just anything. And I believe he visited Japan as a young, younger man. And then um, according to this book, so to do this book, they did, what they did was they interviewed a bunch of people in that scene. 
Um, and not only, uh, yeah, I don't know how much of Coben Chino's story to tell. I also don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. So I apologize. Um, but, um, Shunryu Suzuki had formed this first, uh, Zendo in San Francisco, sort of one of the first American, um, Zen centers in San Francisco, literally in a garage. <clears throat> and Cobancino was, uh, had, had sort of, uh, he'd received his Dharma transmission and was, was set to take over an abbacy in Japan um, from his teacher, but uh, defied his teacher because he was sort of a rule defying guy and moved to America to work with Suzuki. And, um, and so he, Steve Jobs had come to this, Zendo, as a teenager, uh, an older teenager, but a teenager nonetheless, curious about, uh, you know, Zen meditation. And uh, according to the graphic novel, um, uh, he was very put off by Suzuki, but really connected with Kobanchino. Mm. And so they began this sort of on again, off again, start stop relationship. So the the graphic novel is really interesting in that it it breaks that timeline up because if it were to tell the story in order it would feel very much like the Isaacson book where there's sort of one episode of interest in zen and then you don't hear about it until Cobancino uh, marries Steve and his wife he performed the marriage ceremony well so, i i i listened to the Isaacson book and i don't remember any of this this is i all fascinating. You know, all I remember is the trip to Japan. And I don't even know that I knew Kobanchino's name, except that maybe uh, it came up in the marriage ceremony, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that, oh, this, you know, priest that he used to know performed the ceremony. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it was sort of, I, I remember the first time I read it, I thought, I thought this was a largely imagined story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I thought they were kind of trying to piece some ideas of Zen and um, Japanese culture and design and, and trying to make a bigger relationship to the Apple and Steve Jobs sense yeah. of design than was true. But, mm-hmm. you know, in revisiting the book this week and reading those, those notes, they have, a, they have several generous notes at the end, you know, from the author telling how he had researched it and had interviewed all these people within that scene and gotten their impression um, and then tried to relate it to some things. And he even makes a big point of saying, you know, a lot of this book is based on, um, is told sort of like a cone, you know, like one of those Zen puzzles. Oh yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so, and he has Cobancino speak that way a lot, but which to me, I, I found odd and possibly because I had done some sitting in the Soto school of Zen, which he's related to, but, um, it's at the end of the book in that author's note where you, where he recognizes this is not the cones are not a part of Soto Zen. That's actually a Rinzai school of Zen. And, but he just liked that formula. You know, he was like, I couldn't put these extemporaneous, you know, long speaking things that (laughs) Copacino would do in his talks. He had to make it really succinct and pithy and sort of, so he uses mechanisms like that to tell the story in a way that uh, we're, we're, it is really interesting. Like it's sort of like an intellectual portrait of Steve jobs, not a biographical one. And, you know, there are things like he relates the, um, uh, the walking meditation where Cobancino has Steve walk in a circle. Um, and uh, this Kinhin uh, form of meditation where you're walking very, very slowly. And then the timeline jumps on the next page and he's showing the, uh, iPod wheel, you know? 
So it's like he's, or, or sorry, he's uh, he's in the um, he's in the town hall meeting where he's proposing the Apple headquarters be a circle, and so it's you know it's juxtaposing him walking in a circle meditating with the Apple headquarters circle, and so I think in that respect it does this great job of showing this sort of interior uh, life of Steve Jobs you know, and what he might have been thinking. It's just hard to say that's exactly what he was thinking. Do you feel like, I mean, is any of this speculative? Um, is any of, is this yeah. all based oh, yeah. on true accounts or is this, is there like, you know, are they, are they sort of imagining what this would be like? No, exactly. Yeah. He is definitely speculating. Okay. Um, so I, I think, I think what they knew was, um, you know, they knew the two had a relationship. And they knew where that relationship sort of intersected maybe in, in the form of the dates that they were together. Like maybe when Steve went to uh, Tassajara, I believe that's what it's, uh, what it's called. Um, it's a, a Zen retreat <clears throat> uh, here in California. And so I believe he, they knew like, well, Steve had probably visited Tassajara on, you know, around this time and Coben would have been there mm-hmm. and they know uh, when he first met him and they know that he officiated his wedding. And they, so they had these sort of major dates, but they just don't really know the content of the conversations they might've had in those instances. Mm-hmm. So they're juxtaposing that timeline, you know, where it will jump and show, you know, here's the Zendo in uh, Los Altos, 1971. And that's where Steve Jobs is meeting Coben for the first time. Okay, uh, And then it will, it will tell a little bit of that story and it will jump ahead and it will show here they are in 1986 or here's a 1995 where Steve's talking about Pixar and what he's doing at next, you know? Okay. And, and the two of them are in a restaurant. So I would imagine we don't really know that the two of them were in a restaurant and had that conversation. <laughs> on, that, but we, on, that, on that note, do you feel like it, it mythologizes Steve jobs in a way that's unnecessary or out of character? I, so on the first, my, the first time I read this, yes, because okay. I was, uh, you know, I, I probably at the time trying to be a, a contrarian about it. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, thought there was a lot of effusive praise for Steve Jobs a- after his death. A lot of it t- totally well-deserved, but um, a lot of it sort of skipping over his, you know, just verbal brutality with employees and stuff like that. So, so it is interesting that I, that I believe I read this before I read the Isaacson bio and then having read the Isaacson bio, I feel like this is more in context. Like I, I, I'm kind of willing to, to accept the, uh, the glossier version here because I recognize it not as a version of Steve, but as that trying to tell a story about his interior life and his design sense. Okay. Um, Okay. So yeah, I think it, uh, it just, you know, it's another piece of the puzzle, you know, yeah. of what he was thinking. And, um, I, and I really, I honestly, this time too, I was really taken by the descriptions of how the book came together, you know, with the graphic design company that did the art and how the writer, uh, you know, found the right way, the right balance to tell the story. And it just, it just kind of clicked for me. I don't know. You know, it, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Maybe, you know, maybe I just needed that it's seven years of distance or something from it to, to kind of go back into it because I didn't approach it as like an objective truth telling story. I just saw it as like, this is another, 
you know, uh, fable about <laughs> him and what it, what it might've been like. So might've been like, and I think sort of, it's interesting also, like I'm sort of, uh, processing your, uh, surprised by some of this news, you know, saying you didn't really know that he had this relationship with a Zen teacher and, and blah, 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 like that, that sort of makes me think, yeah, this is probably a really essential story to tell in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it, 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 they, so I, I know the point I was going to make with the notes at the end, you can definitely feel, I, I felt on my, on this most recent reading of it and then reading those notes right afterwards that, it does a really good job of explaining the idea of perfection and how Steve Jobs pursued it sort of relentlessly. And okay. Cobinchino okay. was much more of the type of Zen practitioner that I've known personally who sees that the pursuit of perfection is, you know, like a fool's errand. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, and I remember reading the, whether it was in the Isaacson bio or in some other thing about, um, um, Steve Jobs father telling him, you know, a perfectionist polishes the back of the drawer. Mm. And Steve took that as sort of like uh, a moral imperative. Like if you consider yourself a perfectionist, then you will polish the back of the drawer. That's mm. why the creators of uh, the iPhone or the iPad, their signatures were on the inside of the case, you know? Mm. <laughs> and to me, I always took it as like, I had heard that expression before, and I took it as a caution against perfectionism. Like, what sort of idiot would polish the back of a drawer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know that um, I, that is really well done and well, uh, you know, portrayed in this book of how um, how Coben. You know, we don't get a lot of insight into uh, Cobinchino's life, but the way it ends is uh it's very tragic and i don't want to ruin it but that is actually covered in this book and when you see that in juxtaposition with steve jobs life who, who's um also at a tragic end uh but you know not a not related in its, its tragic ac aspects uh yeah it's just it was like it was just really touching you know mm. um so i yeah the art, um, the art is monochromatic for the most part. Yeah, is um, what I'm looking at, and it kind of oscillates between green, blue, and rose, I guess, which is even yeah. on the cover. And there may be some other colors too. But is there is there sort of a rhyme or reason to that color structure? Or does that just break up the um, the timeline, or the uh, do they use it to sort of give you a sense of place or time? I, I would say that it. Um, you know, that's funny because I did. I don't know that I uh, associated it exactly with. I, I, I can't tell you that blue represents a certain timeline and rose represents a different one, but mm -hmm. it, it was definitely used when you flip a page, it signifies the time jump. Okay. So the time jumps are sort of like, it will, you know, it'll flip from blue to green or from green to rose or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and they do, uh, it, there are some sample covers and illustrations at the end of the book where they talk about how they designed it and how they, and they show some of the like early sketches and things like that. And so you can kind of see the, the process of, you know, where they started out and where they ended up. I mean, you, you don't exactly know exactly where they started, but you sort of see that progression and, and how they arrived where they were. Um, so it just, when you look at all of that in context, I think it's, it was really interesting to me to see, Oh, here's where it went from storyboard to this final graphic design. And, they they definitely took that minimalism influence from Apple 
and Steve and made it their own, you know? Got it. Got it. Um, one of the things I do just from what I'm looking at, um, they, they definitely don't draw Steve in a quirky way. Like even the young Steve looks very similar to what I, you know, what I remember, what I would expect old Steve, you know, they really, they even get his, like his, his, uh, you know, face beard, stiffle stuff looks pretty accurate. Um, (laughs) so it's nice to see that this isn't like, you know, they're not taking artistic license to make them. It, what I'm getting at is it seems like the, the nature of the story is more important than trying to do something clever or, you know, subversive with the art, uh, yeah. which I, which I like. So this, I, I don't know this, as you've been talking, I've kind of gone, well, shoot, I'm, I'm equally interested in these topics and just sort of that, that path to enlightenment anyway. So this is kind of a cool way to see how Steve got there himself without delving into the minutiae or the history that we all know pretty, pretty well at this point. This is, this is an interesting look that I think people don't usually get. Yeah. And that's, I, I like that you brought up the illustration. That's definitely one of the things that's shown in the, um, uh, you know, perspective art at the end. Like they do show several drawings of Steve's face and head and how they went from like some, you know, some were experiments in like pure iconography. Like there's no eyeballs, just the perfectly circular glasses and like dots of stubble and the shape of a nose, you know, no mouth, no eyes, yeah, you know, no details in the ear. Um, and then, and then, you know, where they added a few features and then where they added a ton of features and it looks very comic booky. And then where they arrived on this very, like, sort of, you know, it looks like a brush stroke. Um, and I, I honestly, I didn't really even think about it too much until you brought that up, but especially contrasting that with how terms and conditions runs through the history of comic yeah. books and draw yeah. Steve either as sort of hero or villain in all these different contexts. And so you and I have looked at a ton of, (laughs) you know, everything from like a heroic Steve as a, you know, to like a a total parody um, cartoon character. And so this one is, yeah, it's very restrained and I I think respectful, you know, it's not, there's no, all the elements in this work to tell the story in that very thematic way of simplicity and minimalism and, uh, you know, giving the meaning of the story more than the accurate details. How do you think now that you have both terms and conditions in this, do you feel like they're complementary? I mean, do you feel like they're must haves for anybody interested in Steve jobs or are they so different that you really can't associate? No, them I, that way? Actually, I think that that's a good, uh, that's a good question. And it speaks exactly to that. Uh, former contrary attitude I had towards Steve, you know, where I, I was just very concerned about like, you know, how, <laughs> what a nightmare it sounded like to work at Apple under him. Yeah. Yeah. And I think terms and conditions in its, uh, in its way. Um, now it's not really focused on the details of the Apple day to day, but when, because it is a literal retelling of all the terms and conditions that we all agree to when we join an iTunes account, and so it is, uh, that is its own brutality, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so reading terms and conditions is definitely the, the story of the legally brutal Steve and reading this is the story of that struggle. He uh, went through to become an artist and as it's pointed out in this book to, to place Apple at that intersection of technology and liberal arts, you know, I, man, I love that juxtaposition. Cause yeah, you really, I mean, I'm not a Steve Steve Jobs fanboy by any stretch of the imagination. I do appreciate his contributions, and I appreciate that he's you know he was a complicated character. And I think I like that 
I like that duality because you really need yeah. you need that duality. You need to know kind of what a prick he is or was exactly. and what he could do. But you also need to know like where there was very much like he, he wasn't totally a prick. It was very much half that and half this sort of thoughtful um, other sort of thing. And I like that. I'm definitely going to pick this up. Do you recommend as my usual question goes, do you recommend digital physical? How did you, how did you consume this? Mine is physical, but um, I honestly, I think it, it probably works well either way because it is, it is so stripped down um, that it is not exact. I mean, like it's, it's a lovely book, you know, but it's, it doesn't, it doesn't like jump out from lots of other trade paperbacks on my shelf. Got it. Uh, and just given its nature, like, I mean, why not? <laughs> and it's subject, why not read this on an iPad? You know, yeah. like what a, what a like great way to do it. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it, you know, it's, it, Fantastic. Well, <laughs> well, that said, you can go pick up the Zen of Steve Jobs and uh, Black Mon- the the Black Monday Murders at your local shop or online. Go support your your folks um, on New Comic Book Day and uh, this podcast, Todd. You can find anywhere podcasts are consumed. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, I particularly like to use Pocket Casts if you want a good Android app. Oh, and you yeah. can also find us uh, online. We're findusthere.org. I am at Taylor Trask on Twitter. Todd, where are you? I am at Hey Todd A on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. And, and please, please, please tell your friends about this show. If you liked it, let us know what picks you may want to hear about. Share this with your friends. Share this with your local comic shop and send us any feedback you have. We're always taking feedback, always interested in what you want to hear. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk yeah. to you next week. I hate to issue a correction huh. right as we're wrapping up, but um, you are actually by Taylor Trask on Twitter. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot my own Twitter. Yes. I, well, because I, I forgot. Every I am yeah, by, yeah. by Taylor Trask <laughs> on Twitter and Instagram. So follow exactly, me. Exactly. Right. Yeah. When I said that about both my handles being the same, I went, wait, Taylor's are too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, clearly I, I, I clearly I go to my own Twitter account all the time, so I know these things. Yeah, and as if you and I needed any more comic books, we've covered two tonight that we're, we each need to pick up <laughs> that the other talked about. So, yeah, great episode. We will see you next week. Thanks very much. Bye bye.